<laughs> hey now, what up though? It's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio. And you might be wondering why I call it the People's Podcast. Well, I've got a brand new reason for me to call it the People's Podcast because I'm putting the future of this show into your hands. This show is now on Patreon. And what Patreon is, it's going to help you the JSC Radio listener, the JSC Radio follower and fan contribute to the show in whatever way you see fit. That's right. Looking for people to help keep this show moving. Whether you want to donate $1 an episode, hell, $1 a month for $5 per episode. I'll shout you out on this show and you'll even be able to vote on exclusive polls and exclusive half episodes. That's right, JSC exclusives. You'll get to hear those half episodes before anyone else. For $10 or more per episode, now it gets fun because you get to be a sponsor on this show. You got a business, you want me to talk about it, I want you to sponsor my show. For $10, hit me up, send me the script, I'm putting you over. Plus, you get all the other cool stuff that comes with it. For $25 an episode, same thing applies, except this time, you will become an official segment sponsor. Do you want a segment of this show sponsored by your business? Of course you do. That's why you want to hit me up on Patreon. For more information on how to become a sponsor of JSC Radio, go to patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Patreon.com slash JSC Radio, and you can truly help this become the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. What we're going to do right here is go back, way back, back into time. If you don't know, you should know. My name is Stone Cold Steve Austin, and I've been busting my ass for eight years to get this opportunity to wrestle for the WWF title at a WrestleMania. So, Shawn Michaels, you can bet your last dollar that I take this match more serious than any match I've ever had in my life. Professionally, I think you're one of the greatest wrestlers to ever step in a ring. Personally, I think you're a big piece of trash. Steve Austin, in my opinion, is the Latrell Sprewell of the World Wrestling Federation, and Vince McMahon is PJ Carlissimo. I do not lay down. I repeat, I do not lay down for absolutely anybody. This is the JSC Radio Retro Review. I'm going to tell you all with a tear in my eye. This is the greatest moment in my life. Everybody was wondering who the third man was. Marcus, are you going to try to beat Bret Hart with a sharpshooter? Yes, he is. Look at this. He's your songs talk about John 316. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. This is the JSC Radio Retro Review. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey now, my name is is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the landmark 75th episode 
of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio, and it is the long-awaited retro review of WrestleMania 14. How the hell is everyone doing today? My name again, J. Scott Smith. I want to thank each and every one of you for supporting this show every single damn week. Of course, I want to thank each and every one of you who are listening to the show, whether it is on SoundCloud, whether it is on Stitcher, whether it is on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whether it is on the TuneIn app, whether it's on Audioboom, or of course, on our two newest homes, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Also, of course, want to thank those of you who are starting to follow the Mind of J. Scott Smith playlist on Spotify. I will put a link to it in the description. You can go check that out. But damn it, this isn't your normal show. And it's been something that I have been unfortunately postponing for a few weeks now. We're finally here and it's time, baby. It is time to go back into the Wayback Machine to complete essentially the four-part series of retro reviews that started during last year's SummerSlam. Well, not last year's SummerSlam, during SummerSlam last year, going back to the 1997 event in New Jersey that began this entire weird winding road that got us from The Undertaker being world champion to Bret the Hitman Hart to the infamous Montreal Screwjob where Shawn Michaels becomes champ to now for the beginning of the Austin era at WrestleMania 14 in Boston. As always, Retro Reviews are taking a new look at an old pay-per-view. It's looking at them from modern-day current eyes. So yes, we're going to watch another 1998 pay-per-view with 2018 eyes to also complete the Grand Slam here. And the thing about WrestleMania 14... WrestleMania 14 stands out primarily as the night that Austin officially became the man, the champ. For Stone Cold Steve Austin, it's something that he'd been in wrestling at that point eight years. He started in world-class championship wrestling, eventually ended up doing work for the USWA, goes down to WCW to join up with Crockett, and then he gets fired. Hmm goes to ECW for a little bit, and then ends up in the WWF in 1995. And it was a year and a half later that, well, his name officially got made out there in these streets. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. We all know that. We all know it. We've all heard it. We've all loved it. It is what it is. Steve Austin first got his name made in the summer of 96. In November of 96, He had the incredible match with Bret Hart at the Survivor Series. The year before this, at WrestleMania 13, he had arguably the greatest WrestleMania match in history with Bret Hart again. So now that we've gotten through all that, 1997 was his year. 1997 was the year that he climbed up the ranks in the midst of all the insanity that went on with Sean and Brett during 1997 that they became the focal point. Looming in the back of everyone's mind was, how does Steve Austin climb that ladder? Because that was the whole point of this entire crazy scenario, was to find a way to get the world title to Steve by WrestleMania 14. And it just so happened that we've made it here. So now, without further ado, 
without me running my mouth, let's get down to business. We're going to jump right into the retro review. And yes, we're doing the whole pay-per-view. It's not just simply the championship match. We're doing the whole damn thing. We head to the Fleet Center, the current home of the Boston Celtics, who are facing the Philadelphia 76ers in the second round of the playoffs for the 14th installment of WrestleMania. The opening video talks about the history of mania being tarnished by the rogues such as Degeneration X and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Oh, and by the way, I almost forgot to mention, this is also the Mike Tyson WrestleMania because a lot of this is going to allude back to our last retro review of the 98 Royal Rumble because a fair amount of this carried over. And obviously, at the time, Mike Tyson was a tangential part of this. The next night, it became clear he was a part of WrestleMania. And over the next two months, as I will, I will, I will explain, he became a focal point of the entire thing. But the video showing classic footage of the first 13 WrestleManias, including Hogan, including Ric Flair, including Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and Savage and Steamboat, to now the, quote, current day with DX and Austin and so many others raising hell around the WWF. And we go right into it from the Fleet Center. Now, one of the things you'll notice here is that unlike many of the other major pay-per-views and all the WrestleManias, there was no rendition of America the Beautiful. There was no big, splashy, pyro-filled entrance that had even occurred in the previous WrestleManias, not just the ones afterward. This one got right down to business as they were still introducing all of the teams for our first match of the evening, this kind of slapdash thrown together 15-team battle royal that you heard JR talking about there. In fact, the pay-per-view opens as the Godfather and Farouk, a.k.a. Ron Simmons, Damn. are walking out to the ring. So we don't get this big flashy intro that we normally get at WrestleMania. We're getting right down to business. Now, the hook for this tag team battle royal is simple. 15 teams. Each time one member of a team is eliminated, both guys are gone. That's a little silly, I know, but both guys are gone. In the run-up to this, by the way, the winner gets a World Tag Team title shot at the next pay-per-view, Unforgiven. We will not be reviewing that. In the run-up to this, there were 14 teams. In fact, I can break down some of this. There were 14 teams, including four of the five Nation of Domination members. The only guy not there was The Rock. The new Midnight Express, managed by Jim Cornette. The Godwins, who still have Confederate flags all over him. Four of the Bariquas. And once again, one guy gets in. His partner is out. But there were 14 teams, and there needed to be a 15th. I wonder who possibly could be the 15th team.
That's right. The 15th team, the mystery team, the Road Warriors. Hawk and Animal, except these aren't your typical Road Warriors. These Road Warriors come out to the ring wearing not just the shoulder pads, the classic spiked shoulder pads, they're new shoulder pads spiked on one side. They have on spiked wristbands and airbrushed motorcycle helmets. They basically look like some combination of a baseball catcher and a dude from Mad Max. It was it was pretty it was pretty striking to see. And it was actually kind of a cool visual when they walked out there looking like futuristic football players. And also out there with them is Sonny, Tammy, the first time. I really I think that's like the first or second time you're going to see Sonny as a babyface manager with the Road Warriors. No Paul Ellering, just Sonny. Now, the funny part is, is that it takes a second to get the Battle Royal started because the Road Warriors get the Road Warrior pop and the Road Warrior entrance, but it also takes them close to four minutes to get all the gear off, just like a catcher trying to get all his gear off in between innings. And the funny thing is, is that they even had it down to like there were spikes on the shoes and everything else. It took all this time to get all that gear off. They finally get the gear off, and then everybody piles in, and this big schmoz of a battle royal kicks in. Also of note, another team that was in this battle royal was the Rock and Roll Express. That's right. Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson, who just went into the Hall of Fame last year, were in this battle royal. It was during this point where the WWF was doing this whole NWA cross-promotion dealy where you actually had NWA championships being defended on WWF TV. Early 1998 was a very bizarre point in time here, so you, you gotta you gotta understand this. And the Rock and Roll Express were actually in this battle royal. And an even bigger footnote, this is their only WrestleMania appearance. Their one and only WrestleMania appearance. By this point, they were a little past their prime. I say that as they still take independent bookings to this day, but this was their only WrestleMania appearance. The only one for the legendary Rock and Roll Express, and they were in there with the quote-unquote new Midnight Express, which was Bodacious Bart and beautiful, uh, I don't know, I can't tell you who the hell they are. I know it's Bart Gunn and Bob Holly. I was going to say Beautiful Bobby, but Beautiful Bobby is Bobby Eaton and not Hardcore Holly. Yes, that was the other Midnight Express. Barry Windham, also an NWA guy, rushes in and eliminates Chains from DOA, who happened to be the partner of Blackjack Bradshaw. That's right. It's John O'Clock, motherfuckers, in 1998. Blackjack Bradshaw, better known as JBL, was the former tag team partner of Wyndham. They had broken up, and then Wyndham rushed in and eliminated Chains to get Bradshaw up out of there. Then as we also rolled along in here, another team that was in there was the combination of Brian Christopher, the son of Jerry the King Lawler, better known as Too Sexy Brian Christopher, and his tag team partner was Scott Taylor. Well, Mr. Taylor didn't last too long in this match, and Jerry Lawler wasn't too pleased about that. And none of these other 14 teams were prepared for the reemergence of the Legion of Doom. You idiot! Scott Taylor eliminated. That means that Brian Christopher will be returning to the locker room. Why did Brian pick a worthless partner like Scott Taylor? Yes, much to his chagrin, Scott Taylor got eliminated. Why would Brian Christopher ever want a tag team partner like Scott Taylor? Scott Taylor eventually became known as Scotty Too Hotty, and within a year and a half to two years, those two guys would be one of the more over-tag teams in the WWF, but Taylor, making his first WrestleMania appearance, was basically a high-profile jobber 
being tossed into this battle royal. Just imagine some local job boy being in the Andre the Giant battle royal today. We keep rolling along, and now it comes down to the, I mean, because we're not going to waste too much time in this. It comes down to the Road Warriors and the new Midnight Express. I keep putting the biggest quote marks around these guys. The Godwins come back in. The Godwins who'd had this long-standing feud with the Road Warriors because Road Warrior Hawk legitimately broke Henry Godwin's neck on a doomsday device, comes back in, and they hit both the Road Warriors with slot buckets. This was some of the leftover goodness from the New Generation era. They were getting all that out of here. This was really the last night of the New Generation era of the WWF was WrestleMania 14. Holly and Bart Gunn were able to toss Hawk over the top, toss Hawk out of the ring. He did not go over the top rope. He went out through the middle. Animal, who rolled out to the floor, returned into help. And in the midst of all this, we finally get to our finish. Bodacious Bart just got driven clear through the mat. Ooh. That's right. You knew when they were coming out there in all that brand new gear, there was zero chance they were not winning this battle royal. Hawk tosses Bart Gunn to officially end the battle royal. Animal tossed out Bob Holly seconds after this to give the Road Warriors the win in 8 minutes, 19 seconds, and they become the number one contenders for the WWF World Tag Team Championships thanks to winning this very schmozzy battle royal. Not much else really needs to be said about this other than the Road Warriors won it. And kind of a spoiler alert, they do not end up winning the Tag Team Championship. Next matchup is the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship. This is the championship that was the precursor to the Cruiserweight title. First, the Cruiserweight, not the, not the current purple Cruiserweight title that Cedric Alexander holds on 205 Live. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the Cruiserweight title that kind of became the Cruiserweight title when the company absorbed WCW. So there's your Cruiserweight Championship. But this time, it's the light heavyweight title and the current champion at the point, Taka Michinoku, facing Aguila. Not going too deep into this. Again, this was the answer to the WCW Cruiserweight title. And hell, at least this one actually made the main card as opposed to the Cruiserweight Championship match at WrestleMania 34. Taka won the belt at In Your House Degeneration X in December of 1997. And this would be the only time the light heavyweight championship would appear at WrestleMania. Taka hits the Michinoku driver for the win. We're not going to go through this match. He won it in six minutes to retain the belt. He would hold the belt all the way to October 1998 before losing it to Christian. Apparently, he didn't get that rocket strapped to him for too much longer after this. We're going to jump right in to our next match, which is the European Championship match, which is Triple H versus Owen Hart. But first, we head to the back for an interview featuring The Rock being interviewed by Jennifer Flowers. Now... This interview was often kind of cited as the moment Rocky Maivia officially became The Rock. And you see it in the mannerisms. He'd been building and building and building toward it. But this is the first time you would actually see Rock wearing one of his very loud, gold-covered, South Beach-type shirts. By the way, congratulations on the birth of his latest kid. But, yeah, this was young, cocky Dwayne Johnson becoming The Rock. This is when he'd started to achieve his final form as The Rock here. And yes, the interview was certainly mad problematic 
as he's being interviewed by Jennifer Flowers, best known as one of the women who had an affair with former President Bill Clinton. If you were the ruler, how would you handle the homeless situation? Tell you what, Jenny, that is a touchy subject to The Rock. The homeless situation here in America, The Rock feels like this. As long as The Rock still has his palatial palace down on South Beach in Miami, Florida, he really couldn't give a damn whether or not they live in a frigid air box or a Kenmore box. As long as those homeless pieces of trash keep their cardboard homes off The Rock's freshly mowed grass, everything will be aesthetic. <laughs> Just go back and watch WrestleMania 14 on the WWE Network. That was not the most problematic thing that Rock says during this whole deal, but this was also truly the birth of the Attitude Era. You could argue the Attitude Era was really kind of born out of the Montreal Screwjob, or it really kind of came around that Royal Rumble. No. The Attitude Era was in full effect once we got into WrestleMania 14. We now jump over to the next match. Triple H versus Owen Hart for the WWF European Championship. Triple H is the champ here, having won it, defeating a legitimately injured Owen Hart on Monday Night Raw a few weeks earlier. Triple H comes into the match with China, and one of the stipulations in this match, because at this point, China is kind of like a jacked up version of the Singh brothers and Jinder Mahal here. China was going to be handcuffed to WWF Commissioner Sergeant Slaughter. Interesting enough here, because Sergeant Slaughter, he's your on-screen commissioner, but he really doesn't do a hell of a lot. He and Hunter had had this rivalry. They actually had a match at in your house, Degeneration X in December, that same pay-per-view that Taco won the title and Ken Shamrock nearly won the world title. They had a match at that pay-per-view and they've been beefed out ever since. So now we have Sergeant Slaughter being handcuffed to China as this match gets underway. Yes, that's Triple H having come out to the live DX band playing his song on the way out there. This would obviously be the first of many elaborate entrances for Triple H. This is like just the start of it for him. And meanwhile, he gets followed out by a fully babyface Owen Hart, one of the rare times you would see full-time babyface Owen Hart after 1994. Unfortunately, as we all know with Owen, this was his last WrestleMania appearance in a singles match. And this was still from that leftover feud from Montreal. Hebner, all the way, by the way, Earl Hebner was announced, was not refing at this WrestleMania because he had suffered a, a health scare the night before and was unable to actually show up for the event. Meanwhile, Owen is recovering from a legit ankle injury that he suffered. 
that caused him to have to drop the European title in the first place. He was out in a walking boot, and the match that he lost the title in, China hits him in the foot with a baseball bat, and he ends up passing out from the pain, and Triple H ends up winning the belt that way because Owen was not going to tap out to him. So the match jumps off. Owens and Owens, like I'm talking about Kevin Owens, Hunter and Owen wrestled this fast paced match, which at one point even saw Owen go out to the floor to taunt China into trying to hit him. Almost like the best way to describe this is any of you who've ever seen Super Mario Maker or Super Mario Brothers 3, you've seen the chain chomps where Mario gets too close to a chain chomp and the damn thing starts lunging at him, but is stopped by a chain. That's what China looked like. She looked like a very angry chain chomp trying to get at Owen Hart, who then as Hunter dove out, he sidesteps him and watches Hunter go just basically eat it into the barricade. Owen first attempts a sharpshooter after reversing a pedigree. Hunter is able to break it up by shooting Owen off into the corner, only for Owen to hit the damn ring post and then fall backwards and headbutt Hunter in the balls. It's a very it's a very funny, very cutesy little spot that you would see occasionally Owen do in some of, some of his matches. This thing rolled along until finally we get close to the finish. Triple H attempts another pedigree, but Owen is able to reverse it into a sharpshooter where he locks it in fully. As he locks in the sharpshooter and the referee is mainly focused on trying to get this sharpshooter called, all of a sudden China, with Slaughter supposedly holding her, is able to reach into the ring, grab Hunter's hand, and pull it onto the bottom rope. As Owen is pulled back, he's pissed off at Tim White, wondering how on earth did he miss it. China reaches into her pocket and throws a handful of powder into Slaughter's eyes. How are you going to handcuff this woman to you without checking her? You didn't check her pockets. Why didn't you check China's pockets? And it even leads to a more hilarious moment because very clearly everyone turns around and see all this white powder floating around everywhere, almost like a powder bomb went off. Nobody seems to question it. Owen took a couple of swipes at China, not cool, then turns around and eats a nut shot from China in one of those actual kind of iconic video clips that they show in the whole DX video. They show China drilling Owen with a low blow, setting up the finish. The commissioner has been blinded. A low blow. China caught Owen with a low blow. was pretty much fade accompli after the low blow. Triple H scoops up Owen for the pedigree, the pin, and the win to retain the European title in 11 minutes and 30 seconds. And for good measure, China punches out Sergeant Slaughter and tosses him into the front row. As Tim White, the referee, goes onto the floor and looks around, there's all this powder strewn all over the floor, and he doesn't seem to even wonder where the hell any of it came from. Pro wrestling, ladies and gentlemen, especially at that time period, it was fantastic. Coming up after this break, WrestleMania 14 continues first with one of the biggest mixed tag matches in WrestleMania history that did not involve Ronda Rousey. And secondly, the saga of Ken Shamrock versus The Rock continues where once again, the world's most dangerous man just can't seem to keep his damn head. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 75th episode of The People's Podcast, the retro review of WrestleMania 14, and we'll be back after this. 
Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Man, do I love card night. You ready, boys? You got a king? Go, fish that. Oh, come on. <laughs> this is WWE superstar Titus O'Neil. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. What are all the things you witness online in a day? Cats playing piano. Selfies on your feed. Your friend's picture being turned into a nasty meme that's been shared 50 times. 51. 52. When someone's being bullied online, it's hard to know what to do. Now you can speak up with the witness emoji. It looks like an eye in a speech bubble, and it's in the symbol section near the clocks in your phone. You'll let the world know it isn't cool, and you'll let your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. This is JSC Radio. Sable, on behalf of the Raw Magazine and all your millions of fans across the world. I can't wait for that mixed tag match, though. What is she going to wear Sunday on paper? I would like to present you with this award for making the January issue of Raw a very special magazine. I would like to thank all the fans for buying this magazine and making this possible for me. Oh, wait and a minute. And I accept what? this award with Uh-oh. great honor. Oh, the party looks like it's going to be over. Here comes Luna and Goldust. The mixed tag is Sunday on pay-per-view, hey, look but out. it may here be right here, one-on-one. Hey, look Wait a minute. She, she got the plaque. Luna got the plaque and just smacked. Oh, no. Stop that. Luna attacks Sable look in out. the head face with that She's plaque. She's her dress off. Ah. Whoa. Luna just ripped Sable's evening gown, but she struck. Luna struck Sable in the head in the face with that plaque. My God. Man, that just sucks, doesn't it? When you win an award and immediately someone's running in there to basically, you know, crap all over your achievement. That's awful. This is the 75th episode of The People's Podcast. It's a retro review of WrestleMania 14 right here on JSC Radio. Welcome back. Jay Scott Smith here. want to thank each and every one of y'all for supporting the show on all the different podcast providers. Be sure to follow me on the Twitter machine at J Scott Smith. That's J-A-Y-S-C-O, two T's, S-M-I-T-H. I am verified. I am also on Instagram under the same name, J Scott Smith. I am on Facebook at Real J Scott Smith. Original. Yes, I'm verified there too. Hey, Instagram, anytime you want to verify my ass, go for it. I'm verified on Facebook. I'm verified on Twitter. Let's go for the trifecta and get it on Instagram, too. The show is also on Twitter, at JSC Radio. And naturally, you want to support jscottsmith.com as well as the Patreon page, patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Thank you very damn much. We rejoin WrestleMania 14, which, by the way, this would be the last WrestleMania that would have this song, the one you hear underneath me, this song underneath it as its title track. This was the song, and there's a really... It's almost kind of campy and humorous looking video now when you see it 25 years later of when this song first debuted in 1993 that has all the different WWF superstars of the time in the video. But this was the last year that this WrestleMania song would be used as its title track. And as we head back into WrestleMania 14, 
One of the more anticipated matches, much like WrestleMania 34 this year, was a mixed tag match. Except instead of the featured woman in the mixed tag match being Ronda Rousey, one of the scariest and most dangerous women on the planet, this year, in 1998, it was Sable. That's right, the valet for Marvelous Mark Marrow. Now, to understand the buildup for this, Sable had never actually wrestled a match, but little by little over the preceding months, she and the late Luna Vachon had gotten into a rather interesting feud. To kind of explain this, the idea is that Mark Marrow, not to be confused with our boy, you know, Marrow Marrow from Jesus and Marrow, the idea is that Marrow was jealous of Sable's success because Sable was hugely over like big time over. She was the most over woman in this company since, dare I say her name, the fabulous Moolah. Sable was over big. And they, the storyline is that Mero, the former Golden Gloves boxer and one time Johnny B. Bad in WCW, had become essentially insecure and jealous of Sable. He demeans and verbally abuses her in the ring. And at some point, late in 1997, after the Survivor Series, when Goldust has, you know, gotten slapped by Vader and eventually lost to Vader at the Royal Rumble, Merrow enlists Goldust to oddly mock Sable because one thing that they were doing in 1998 was having Goldust dress up as a woman. Teehee, giggle, giggle, let's make fun of the dude dressed like a girl. He enlists Sable to come out, excuse me, enlists Goldust to come out and mock Sable. And oddly, Luna Vachon, who as you recall was Goldust's manager, becomes violently jealous. And over time, Sable gets fed up and starts to fight back. So you essentially have three heels and one babyface being Sable. Sable starts to fight back. Luna at some point kisses Mero, which pisses off Sable, who was actually married to Mark at this point in time. Dustin breaks up the fight and in the process grabs Sable just to pull her out of the way. This pissed off Mero and here we are. This whole damn thing is friggin' bonkers. It's bizarre. It's nothing like Kurt and Rhonda versus Triple H and Stephanie, which was built on Three years worth of just pretty much hard feelings after Ronda embarrassed both of them at WrestleMania 31, nor is it about Kurt making weird comment. No, this is what it is. It's a very bizarre love triangle, rectangle, whatever the fuck it might actually be. It makes no damn sense, but it also led to one of the more anticipated debuts in a long time. Sable had never wrestled, so you don't know what to expect, and it didn't help that there was real-life heat between... Sable and Luna Vachon, they can't stand each other. Well, couldn't stand each other. Luna's no longer with us. They couldn't stand each other. And in numerous wrestling podcasts, whether it's Bruce Pritchard, whether it's other WWF luminaries who were around at the time, Luna and Sable did not like each other. Sable had not exactly endeared herself to a lot of people, but she really didn't endear herself to Luna Vachon. So coming into this match, it was a question of whether Luna would really be ready to do business with her. Well, it's time to find out as we head to the ring for this mixed tag team match. Matchup, as we said earlier, there have only been this has only 
boxing community have joined us as well. I understand even Marvin Hagler's here. So yes, as you heard, Goldust and Luna were the first ones out, followed by Marrow and Sable to what is arguably, at least to this point, the biggest pop of the damn night. Insane. Insane how over Sable actually was when she walked out there. This is Sable's first match, period, and this is Marrow's first appearance at a WrestleMania. He was injured and missed WrestleMania 13, and he officially signed the day after WrestleMania 12. They, he appeared on camera but did not actually appear in the ring at WrestleMania 12. So two years in, he's finally in a WrestleMania. This is the third mixed tag match, as Jim Ross pointed out, the third mixed tag match at WrestleMania to that point. And this year's mixed tag match, again, was Ronda Rousey's first overall match. So you never thought you would find an instance where Ronda Rousey and Sable would share some sort of similarities. That's about where the similarities end, however. Now, the match starts off with Mero and Goldust, but quickly switches when Dustin tags in Luna. Sable gets tagged in to do just a massive pop, and Sable just simply chases Luna around the ring. But before Luna can actually, you know, get any sort of comeuppance for attacking Sable with a plaque on Raw, as you heard at the start of this segment, she slips back into the ring and tags Dustin right back in. So now it turns back into this match where Mero and Goldust are basically going at each other. And that's really what this was. This match was basically engineered where Sable would not have to do much of the heavy lifting because she was never much of a wrestler. Luna was going to be able to guide her most of the way. And Mark and Goldust were going to be able to do most of the work. Remember, Luna is still refusing to tag in. And Luna Vachon's one of the scariest women in the business at this point. Like, legit. Like, frightening. She could kick anybody's ass in the room. But she refused to tag in and face Sable. Marrow frustratedly tags back in and gets back at it with Goldust. And the crowd chants for Sable. Like, really, really wanting Sable. And finally, it happens. Goldust tags Luna and Marrow hot tags Sable, and boy, did this thing take off. Marrow tags in Sable, and now let's get it on. Double X takedown, in it goes! Catfight, Sable is hammering Luna, and this crowd is going absolutely crazy here. She's choking, she's pulling hair, no fair, she's cheating. Big, big pop for Sable. This was pure 1998 WWF. Sable takes down Luna with a flurry of punches, grabs her by the hair, works her over in the corner before tossing her across the ring, then running over and sucker punching Goldust before clotheslining Luna to the floor. Place is going nuts. Luna finally tags back out to Dustin, who gets punched one more time by Sable before she slips back out. They gave Sable a ton of offense and made her look really, really good. In the process, this also briefly gets Marrow over as a babyface, as now they're cheering him when he's in the ring. He hits a nut shot on a distracted Goldust and then attempts the TKO, which 
and there's a lot of irony in this, the TKO is essentially a move we now know as Brock Lesnar's F5, but Dustin's able to reverse it. Goldust regains control, kicks Mero in the ass to set up a curtain call, but Mero reverses out and hits a springboard moonsault for a very close two count. Goldust then heads up top to the top rope, gets crotched by Mero, who then hits a top rope Frankensteiner for another near fall. He's bringing out all the Johnny B. Bad moves at this point. Mero goes into the ropes, gets kicked by Luna. He grabs her by the hair, not cool, threatens to punch her, that's a big no-no today, but then sidesteps the charging Dustin who takes Luna out, schoolboys him for another near fall. We start to close in on the finish after Mero hits the TKO on Goldust. Luna breaks up the pin, climbs on Mero's back, which is shades of the Royal Rumble that must have been a thing with her, climbing up on Mero's back before Sable blind tags in and attempts to cover Goldust. Jim Corderas, the referee, was a little late and gets around to try to count it, but then Luna hops off Mero, goes up top and misses, splashing on top of Goldust, setting up this crazy ass spot. I can't believe it! No way! Powerbomb! We have a powerbomb, Luna! He's got the cover in an air fall! He kicked out! Sable powerbombing Luna for a very close near fall. Luna was able to rake the eyes, choke Sable on the ropes, and then out of nowhere, this match ended. Sable now in a lot of trouble here as, as a Luna buries his shoulder to the ripped midsection of Sable. Oh, Sable, counter, wait a minute, Sable, can she, don't tell me, yes, oh, TKO, he got him again, Sable with a TKO, Sable is able to reverse out of a whip into a textbook TKO. Again, looks a hell of a lot like Brock Lesnar's F5. The irony there, of course, is that Sable is now married to Brock Lesnar. She hits the F5 to end the match. Mero and Sable win the mixed tag in 9-10 in surprisingly one of the best matches of the whole damn show. I cannot stress this enough. Luna hated Sable in real life, could not stand her, and the feeling was mutual, but she did the business for. This shows you you can work with somebody if you can't stand them. Sable and Mero pose in the ring victorious. Mero actually raises Sable's hand, has a big smile on his face, and for a very brief moment, actually looked like a pretty nice little babyface tag team. Sable, who was never again renowned as a great wrestler, Gotta love the irony of her using the TKO finish because she is currently married to Brock Lesnar. So who knew some four or five years before Lesnar even enters the company that his future wife would be out here dropping an unbeatable hold or an unbeatable move on Luna Vachon. And funny how the F5 has basically become unstoppable unless your name is Roman Reigns. But we're going to move right on past that and right on over to our next Big time match, the WWF Intercontinental Championship match. The champion, The Rock, taking on the challenger, the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock, in a rematch of that wild and woolly, dusty finish at the Royal Rumble a couple of months earlier. Prior to the match, oddly for no real apparent reason, Tennessee Lee, or those of you who follow WCW may know him as Colonel Robert Parker, or the old school territorial heads know him simply as Robert Fuller, is in the ring to randomly introduce 
Jeff Jarrett, who was walking out with Jennifer Flowers, who interviewed The Rock earlier and is the special guest ring announcer for this particular match. And here we go. Well, the following contest is for the World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental Championship. Introducing first, accompanied by members of the Nation of Domination, the World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental Champion, The Rock! Yeah! The Intercontinental Champion, The Rock. Yes, indeed. So the Nation of Domination, except for Farouk, which you should make a note of that, comes out with The Rock. Meanwhile, here comes Ken Shamrock with his new remixed music. And again, you got to remember that Rumble match where Shamrock comes out there. I mean, for months, he and Rock have just been at it at this point. But that Rumble match where Shamrock appeared to dominate Rock gets hit with a foreign object only to have Rock plant the foreign object in Shamrock's tights. Go back and listen to episode 66 to hear my description of that. And Shamrock appears to pin and beat Rock for the belt only to have the referee check his tights, find the planted weapon, and reverse it back to Rock. So now, going into this match, if Rock gets himself disqualified, he loses the Intercontinental title. Gotta make sure you remember that as a part of this as well. Immediately, Shamrock goes into the ring. He goes right after Rock. The fight finds its way to the floor. Then back into the ring, Shamrock was just like he was shot out of a cannon. Rock gains control after Shamrock goes out to the floor. He's able to hit the people's elbow, which at this point is now being called the people's elbow, to get a two count. Shamrock goes to the floor, frustrated, and inexplicably grabs a chair and shoves referee Jack Doan. Problem is, The Rock gets a hold of the chair, and then, well... You knew one of these had to happen at some point. Shamrock, wait a minute. This is not a smart move. You know, Shamrock can't win with a disqualification either. Oh, that ain't smart. Shamrock, referee knocked down. His head hit the turnbuckle. Oh, what a shot. That steel terrorist did it with Shamrock's face imprinted. Absolutely brutal chair shot to the head that's one of still maybe the most kind of disarming things about seeing these old pay-per-views is the number especially from about 96 all the way till around 2004 2005 the number of just unprotected just kill shots to the head that occur in these matches somehow shamrock kicks out at two hulks up fires back with punches and a power slam shamrock hooks in the ankle lock and the rock quickly taps out. Some idiot. Oh, look, oh, they look, 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 look at this. The ankle lock. The ankle lock. That's it. The Rock tapped out. Shamrock has dominated. The Rock. Shamrock has won the Intercontinental title. But he's in for another fight of his life here. A cut 
So your winner at just four minutes and 49 seconds, Ken Shamrock, he finally wins his first Intercontinental Championship, his first title in the WWF, but he's still hanging on to that ankle lock. Now, Nation members enter the ring with D'Lo and then Godfather and later Mark Henry all being met by suplexes from Shamrock. And then he pounces on Rock again and locks in the ankle lock. And this is where you kind of see where it's going again. The Rock just clawing, scratching, doing whatever he can to get out of this ankle lock. He's still trying to escape. He gets dragged in for even more ankle lock. At this point, in comes Farouk, who didn't make his way to the ring. Ron Simmons comes streaking out of the back wearing jeans. He attempts to enter the ring only to stop short and flip Rock off, then turn around and leave. Jack Doan's still ringing the bell. The referee is still ringing the bell. That's not working. Rock, who's bleeding hard weight from the mouth, still trying to get out. Corderas enters the ring, and Shamrock finally releases the hold. By now, other officials and referees from the back have entered the ring as well, including Gerald Briscoe and Pat Patterson, and a bunch of guys that I don't readily recognize as referees. Hmm, maybe they just stopped refing after this one incident. Shamrock decides to start tossing these referees all over the place, then drop some other random guy in a suit before Patterson and Briscoe are finally able to convince the raging, raving maniac Shamrock to stop. And unfortunately for Ken, it was too little too late. Well, I'll tell you what, the uh, former Intercontinental Champion has been decimated, physically dissected. conferring with our ring announcer, Howard Finkel. World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental Champion, The Rock. What? What did he say? Ladies and gentlemen, The Rock has reversed his decision and has disqualified Kate Shepard for refusing to break the submission hold. Therefore, he awards the decision to the man who is still As they're calming down Shamrock, the referees were conferring, and suddenly, as you heard there, Howard Finkel makes the announcement, the winner by disqualification, The Rock at 449 to retain the Intercontinental title. There's re this really humorous sight when you watch this back on the network of Rock being rolled out on a stretcher, the belt having been run over to him, so he's basically limp, laid out on the stretcher, arm in the air holding the belt before Shamrock storms out of the ring, attacks the Rock on the stretcher, tosses him onto the DX stage, and straight up stomps him out. Shamrock has been robbed. The Irish has been robbed in Boston. And Shamrock going back. Shamrock tosses a Rock off the, the stretcher. Shamrock is a wild dog. He is a rabid animal. The Rock slammed on the DX So for the second time in three months, Ken Shamrock wins the Intercontinental title 
only to immediately lose it on a reversal. The first time was due to Rock's shenanigans. The second time was due to his own insanity. It's kind of hard to figure out what would happen here. Spoiler alert, Shamrock would eventually win the Intercontinental Championship, but it wouldn't be until later on in the year. Next up, another title match. This one for the World Wrestling Federation Tag Team Championship. It's the New Age Outlaws, the champions against the challengers, Cactus Jack and Terry Funk. To understand the beef here, you got to go back to February 2nd, just after the Royal Rumble. One of the most infamous moments of the burgeoning Attitude Era occurred where, yes, Chainsaw Charlie, Terry Funk, and Cactus Jack ended up in a dumpster. They were having a dumpster match on Monday Night Raw before the Outlaws showed up, locked them both in a dumpster. There were people in there, damn it. And it was really one of the most compelling scenes of the early Attitude Era where it looked really convincing that they were really hurt. Go back on the network and watch this. You can hear Terry Funk at some of his best here. They were really, really milking this like it worked, only to completely ruin the angle, something that even Bruce Pritchard has talked about on Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard, when they talked about this angle, they completely ruined the whole damn thing by having Cactus and Funk show up at the end of the night like they ran out of a hospital room. It looked really stupid. But this thing stretched out to the point where we now have ourselves a dumpster match at WrestleMania 14 for the WWF World Tag Team Championship. One team must place both members of their opponents inside this dumpster here at ringside. So Cactus and Terry are out first. As you heard there, Finkel explaining the rules of the uh, casket match, of the dumpster match. It's kind of like a casket match, actually, of the dumpster match. And then out after the challengers are the champions who appear to have finally mastered the ring introduction. Terry Funk at 53 years of age. It should also be noted that this is the final night before the New Age Outlaws join D-Generation X. So we start this match with Funk out here in full Terry Funk gear. He didn't bother putting on the stocking cap and acting like Chainsaw Charlie other than carrying out the chainsaw. We all knew it was Terry Funk. Why should we sit here and expect anything less? The match begins on the floor, as you'd expect with the guys like this. 
Foley throws Road Dog right into the side of the dumpster, then hits a vicious running knee while Billy works over Terry. Foley attempts to put Road Dog into the dumpster and takes a nasty headshot from a cooking sheet? I couldn't tell if it was a cooking sheet or a platter. It was one of those things you see in a cafeteria. I just know that Foley got the shit slapped out of him with one of them. Foley then attempts a plancha onto Road Dog, misses, and hits that dumpster really hard with his back. Funk is thrown into a barricade and then backdropped into the dumpster. The dumpster match, again, is essentially like a casket match. Both guys got to go in and you shut the lid. It's similar to what you saw at the Greatest World Rumble with Undertaker against Rusev, where he eventually threw Rusev and Aiden English in there at the same damn time. Road Dog bounces Foley off the dumpster with a leg sweep. Funk happens to get out of the dumpster, and the outlaws take turns slamming the lids on these two guys' heads. Again, lots of headshots here. After dumping Cactus into the dumpster, they rip off Funk's shirt and hit him with a bunch of flare chops before dumping him in. Now, Billy begins to celebrate when Foley rises out and gives both guys the mandible claw. Billy will drill Cactus again with another cooking platter. Of course, he hit him in the head. Funk smokes Billy with a cooking sheet. Billy's now bleeding from the nose after this shot. Ross notes, and this is something I didn't think of initially, but I remember mentioning it, and it really does make a hell of a lot of sense now that you look back. Ross notes that Terry Funk, this is his second WrestleMania appearance. It was his first one since 1986 when he wrestled at WrestleMania 2. One of those WrestleManias that this company rarely ever speaks of, WrestleMania 2, Terry Funk actually wrestled a match at that event. And here he is 12 years later, WrestleMania 14. Back in the ring, Funk smashes Billy again with a cookie sheet as Foley throws Road Dog back into the ring. Cactus dives off the apron onto Billy with the cookie sheet. This, that thing was getting the workout. He then goes under the ring and grabs a ladder as ECW chants erupt in Boston. Cactus and Terry set the ladder up in the ring, then climb to the top, looking to drop an elbow onto the fallen road dog when Billy climbs up from the other side and fights Foley. At that point, Funk is now off the ladder, road dog is on his feet, and this sets up an absolutely ridiculous spot. And now, Mr. Ass, as it says on his tights, excuse my language, mama, and they're gonna fight up the top now. Are they crazy? Oh, shot! Yeah. No! My God! Oh my God! Badass and Cactus were neatly deposited right into the dumpster. Road Dog winds up and slaps Terry Funk in the chest with the cookie sheet sending Terry backwards almost like a domino into the ladder that had both Billy and Cactus on it. He hits the ladder, sending both Billy and Cactus over the top rope, out of the ring, and into the dumpster. An absolutely crazy spot, and one that you would see a whole hell of a lot more of as we moved into the Attitude Era with the TLC matches. Road Dog gets Billy out of the dumpster as Cactus climbs out just as the Outlaws powerbomb Terry in. Get him in there, close the lid, quick! You got him right there! Cactus Jack now is out of the dumpster. Wait a minute, what's going on here? What's he doing? Not a, a power oh, oh, oh God! Good Lord, good Lord! That Terry Funk at 53 just power bombed into the damn steel dumpster! Yes, that should also be noted. Terry Funk was 53 years old at the time of this match. 53. 
With Terry now taken out, apparently, having been powerbombed into the damn dumpster, the outlaws fight Cactus all the way up the aisle, into the back, and back into what appears to be like a cafeteria. And you can already see replays of the domino ladder spot, which is absolutely insane. Now in the back, the outlaws are just trashing Foley, smashing him into catering carts, and more cookie sheets, and more trays, and more platters. There's still no Terry Funk in sight. Foley gets thrown through a bunch of giant plastic Powerade and Surge containers. Remember Surge? That was like a thing. It was like a super jazzed up version of like Mountain Dew or Squirt. It was weird. It was gross. It was full of sugar. And we all drank it when we were in high school in the 90s. Cactus emerges with a chair, delivers more headshots to the outlaws, hits both of them upside the head with a chair. And out of nowhere, Terry Funk appears and he takes over by commandeering a forklift. Foley hits the double arm DDT on Billy onto a pallet laid out on the forklift. Then Road Dog, fresh off of getting slapped upside the head with a chair, gets dumped on top of Billy. And this leads to the very wacky and creative finish that involves Terry Funk and a damn forklift. Our chair shots. Funk, driving a forklift, raises it up as conveniently a second dumpster is waiting in the back. And obviously backstage, you're going to have to have a dumpster to get the trash out. He raises up the outlaws who were laid out on the pallet and they get dumped into the dumpster. Foley closes the lid, locks it. Then Funk, for good measure, brings the forklift pallet down on top of the lid to keep the outlaws from climbing out. The bell is finally rung and that'll do it. Your winners in exactly just 10 minutes. That match only went 10 minutes and it felt like it went 30. Cactus Jack and Terry Funk to win the WWF Tag Team Championship in just a wild, batshit, crazy, really fun match to watch. It wasn't fun for the guys who were actually in it. It sure as hell wasn't fun for Terry Funk, where if you happen to go onto the WWE Network and notice as Funk is crawling over to Foley as they've won the match, you'll see this huge, just ugly bruise starting on Terry's back and working its way all the way down his ass to his, really to his quadricep. It turned out that he had a bruised kidney and was trying to go to the party after WrestleMania before WWF officials kept telling Terry, no, go to the hospital, 
dude, you have a bruised damn kidney. When they tell you that pro wrestling ain't real, it was real to Terry Funk, damn it. Coming up after this break, Pete Rose decides he wants to troll Boston and then ends up paying the price, and Kane and The Undertaker settle their blood feud at WrestleMania. Well, at least I think they do. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 75th episode of The People's Podcast. It's the retro review of WrestleMania 14, and we'll be back after this. Wait a what's going on here? What's he doing? Not a, a power! Check it out. This is JSC Radio. I'm probably okay to have one more drink before I drive home. I'm probably okay. I open the window to stay alert. Probably okay. I just popped some gum in my mouth. Step out of the car, please. I probably made a mistake. Probably okay isn't okay when it comes to drinking and driving. If you see a warning sign, stop and call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey now, it's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of JSC Radio, which you can now hear on Stitcher Radio. That's right, Stitcher is radio on demand. Now you can download the free app today and it's available on iOS, Android, as well as Nook and Kendall Fire. You can take JSC Radio anywhere. The app is free. You can listen anytime, anywhere. Now, if you're wondering what Stitcher is, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all of your favorite shows, plus discover 40,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows, such as JSC Radio. You can create custom playlists. You can rate and review this show and others on Stitcher. Please drop a friendly review on the show. Not only is Stitcher available on all smartphones and tablets, it's also in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory on any of your devices. You can stream your favorite podcasts, like JSC Radio, for free on Stitcher. You don't have the Stitcher app? Simple. Go to Stitcher.com today or check out the App Store on whichever device you use. Stitcher Radio. Be sure to check it out. This is JSC Radio. I'm so sick and tired of hearing you crying and whining about your dead mama and daddy and what you had to tell them on the dark side and all this gaga about the truth. The truth is, Undertaker, is that your brother Kane has the same powers as you do. And that's a scary thought. Oh, go ahead and laugh. How about a little demonstration, Kane? Well, I don't think that's necessary. I believe him. I think we've had enough. Oh, look at my little announcer friends over here. Any, mini, mighty, moe. Which one do you want to go? Come on now. Uh That's enough. Wait a minute. What is going on? No, no. I don't know what you're going to do, but come on. Of the, night. What, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> the late 90s man 
that that they were uh they were very very special time especially for uh the undertaker and kane welcome back this is the 75th episode a landmark episode the retro review of wrestlemania 14 right here on the people's podcast this is jsc radio across every podcast provider thank you so much for supporting the show whether it's on apple Podcasts, on iHeartRadio, on spotify on stitcher on google play on tune in on audio boom and of course on soundcloud at soundcloud.com slash jsc radio of course you want to big up the patreon page patreon.com slash jsc radio continue to give and support the show i need all the help i can get to help this thing get even bigger and better and i mentioned spotify don't forget on spotify we do have the mind of j scott playlist be sure to follow that check that out and you get to hear the best shit that i listen to i came up with that playlist and it's ever growing it's more than 200 songs and damn it it's worth every second so yes we return to wrestlemania 14 and you heard it there we're talking about kane and the undertaker now this was kind of basically made to be like this epic this was this epic feud between brothers it was supposed to be essentially pardon the pun kane versus abel and unfortunately we could never really make out who abel was but this is kane apparently coming back from the dead and led by paul bear to avenge the death of their parents and it was weird it was bizarre it was so 1998 wwf that it was actually kind of endearing when you think about how the company is today so now we've made it to the semi-main event Kane versus The Undertaker. This was supposed to be the start of this major epic. Now, got to remember at the time that Undertaker was coming into this thing 6-0. They ran this entire highlight package of the feud, including, of course, Kane's debut at Bad Blood and Paul Bearer for weeks mentioning that, yes, Kane was coming. Kane was coming, Undertaker. I cannot do the voice. I cannot do the late Paul Bearer any justice trying to make fun of his voice there. It showed the Royal Rumble incident where Kane came out to initially save Taker before jumping him himself, tossing him in the casket and setting it on fire. I I told you, this was 1998 WWF. Kane magically setting a cameraman on fire as well as you heard there coming out of the break, setting the raw announce table on fire. This dude was a bad man. So we've made our way to WrestleMania. WrestleMania 14, Kane versus The Undertaker. First time one-on-one and into the ring to do the ring announcement as the special guest ring announcer is none other than former Cincinnati Red, Major League Baseball's all-time hit king, a guy who, on the merit of his actual on-field achievements, should be in the Hall of Fame, but because he's a scumbag, he's not in the Hall of Fame. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about number 14, Pete Rose from the Cincinnati Reds, and the Philadelphia Phillies. And for about 10 seconds, the Montreal Expos. Pete Rose is in the building, ladies and gentlemen. And since this WrestleMania was held in Boston, the site of one of Pete's greatest achievements as a member of the Reds back in 1975, he saw fit to remind the Boston faithful of just how much he loved the city and what he thought of Red Sox fans.
decided to go full troll here. It was rather interesting considering I don't think anybody expected Pete to go full heel in Boston, but he did. And unfortunately, halfway through his spiel, he was ready to try to introduce Kane, but Kane figured he'll introduce himself. When the lights go out, the flames go up, and that that classic Kane theme, the one that actually is his true theme, plays, it gave you goosebumps. It really did. And I don't think Jim Ross ever got used to those flames hitting. No matter when they came, no matter how, how much he was told it was happening, I don't think he was ever used to those flames hitting. So Kane gets into the ring. Pete looks totally spooked, and he says nothing. He's supposed to introduce Kane, but he doesn't say a damn thing. And by that point... Things get even worse for Mr. Rose. Go ahead and introduce him, Pete. Hey, Rose, can't talk. Cat's got his tongue. Pete may think this is fun and games. Wait a minute. But this is how... To understand what this moment actually was, you got to remember that normally... Celebrities showing up in the WWF generally don't have hands put on them. The only real exceptions to this are, of course, the iconic moment where Andre the Giant playfully chokes Bob Uecker. And back in WrestleMania 2, when you had the football players in the Battle Royal. But you generally do not see that. Kane coming out, getting Pete by the neck, grabbing him, shoving him up into the corner, then scooping him up. For the tombstone to a massive pop. Now, the only issue I have with this is Kane is supposed to be your heel, but he comes out here and tombstones number 14 Pete Rose and Boston goes crazy. It's one of the most memorable moments in WrestleMania history. And it was also going along with the theme because there had been this point for a while where Kane would just show up in the middle of matches or during shows at, at various points when guys were doing promos and interviews, he would just walk down to the ring and tombstone dudes. There was a show they did in Phoenix where the Phoenix Suns mascot, the Phoenix Suns gorilla, got tombstoned by Kane. The other cool thing is this became a running gag in the WWF for about a decade or more where Kane would actually run up on Pete Rose, usually at WrestleMania, and end up tombstoning him. There was one year where Pete showed up dressed as the San Diego chicken and he ate a tombstone. It became a rather interesting bit. So the refs and Gerald Briscoe run in there to gather up Rose and drag him on out. He's wheeled out on a stretcher, looking like the start of the movie Lean On Me. All he needed was the damn IV. And next thing you know, the lights go out, and it's time for The Undertaker. 
So this was cool. This was really cool. I remember the first time I watched WrestleMania 14 because I watched it live. I remember watching this live and thinking this is this is next level for them. Because you got to remember, Taker at the time wasn't making the big grandiose entrances. His entrance has always been classic. But this is one of those times where you see the Druids come out with the flames and the big time music and the and the smokes and everything else. It's a different kind of energy there. And just like I said with Triple H earlier, this is the beginning of the yearly thing where when Undertaker made his entrance into WrestleMania, it was usually a really cool and really drawn out big deal. So Taker and Kane are now in the ring, ready to go. Taker out to his classic huge ovation. It should be noted that Undertaker's rec- WrestleMania record at this point was 6-0. and So the streak had started to gain legs. The previous year at WrestleMania, of course, when he went to 5-0 and is when he beat Psycho Sid to win the world title. We get this match going, and Kane and Undertaker decided to start trading hands to start. They're right in on each other. Kane attempts the tree of woe on Taker, who took the offense to him. This was the rare time you could really see Taker as a sympathetic babyface because Kane had basically been programmed to be this unstoppable, insane monster. Kane works Taker over in the corner, lots of punches, lots of chokes, and out to the floor they go as the onslaught continues. Kane uses the steps, and later Paul Bearer kicks Taker while he's down. After all this, Undertaker finally fires up and gets Kane out to the floor, although he's still on his feet. Now, here's the first major spot of the evening and something that has become kind of commonplace in a lot of WWF and E pay-per-view since. Kane and Undertaker are fighting. He gets Kane over the top rope, knocks him off the apron to the floor, and then Taker decides he's going to make a big risk and try to attempt a plancha, but unfortunately, it did not end well for the dead man. That's right. Undertaker goes crashing straight through the Spanish announce table. Something that, you know, will be associated with The Undertaker a little bit later on in the year. I'll talk about that later on at the show as well. Taker is laid out on the floor. A raging, angry Kane grabs a side of the table, picks it up, and smashes him with it before tossing him back in the ring and then hitting a top rope clothesline. Taker's finally able to fight back, starts to fire up, and manages to get Kane up for the tombstone. Now, you recall last year when I did the SummerSlam 97 review, Undertaker did something that you normally don't see. He was able to break Bret Hart's sharpshooter, which was something that, to that point, nobody had done. Well, Kane, who's been basically just put out here as this super monster, next thing you know, Kane is up for the tombstone in a day and age now where you've seen some of the greats kick out of the tombstone. You've seen Shawn Michaels kick out of the tombstone. You've seen Triple H kick out of the tombstone. Kane kicking out of that tombstone was a major deal because it's something that just didn't happen. When Taker hit that tombstone on you, that was it. You were done. That's the end of the night. Taker, suddenly shocked, couldn't figure out what the hell to do as he's hit this first tombstone in a very close, and I mean super close, two count. Kane gets up. Beats on Taker in the corner. Undertaker finally gets Kane down, starts to fight back, is able to get him up for a choke slam, and then a second tombstone. The Undertaker signaling for the end. But not Kane! 
220-pounder. Even Paul Bearer is in shock. Even Paul Bearer cannot believe that Kane. And look at Kane now, he's up again. Undertaker, can he do it twice? Yes, he can. Hell, this has got to be it. Undertaker's trying to kill his own brother. This will be all. So now that's two tombstones from Undertaker. Kane has kicked both times at two. He doesn't know what to think. He's completely just gobsmacked here of what the hell to do. So Taker heads up top, hits a top rope clothesline. Kane sits right back up, but that now sends us into the finish. A physically gassed and mentally spent Undertaker keeps fighting and fighting on Kane until he gets him up a third time for a tombstone. It took three tombstones, similar to what I think they were going for with Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar, except it took six F5s. But it took three tombstones to finally put down Kane. The Undertaker beats Kane in 1720 by pinfall to go to 7-0 at WrestleMania. And I will say in the pantheon of Taker's matches at WrestleMania, this one is not in the top five. This is not in the upper echelon, the upper tier of them. It was a little ugly. It, I'm not sure exactly what they were going for, but when you try to go for a match like that to make a monster look good, yet at the same time get the guy over, there's a delicate balance. And this one did not hit it. It was similar to Reigns-Lesnar, where they were trying to make Roman Reigns look like this valiant superhero, when really all they did was ruin the F5 by having this goober take six of them before he finally went down. After the match, Paul Bear throws a chair into the ring, as you heard Jim Ross say. He slapped referee Jack Doan out of the way, kicked the tired Undertaker, and as he tries to get Kane, Taker rises up and knocks him out. Kane manages to get a hold of the chair, smashing him on the back, no headshot this time, and then tombstones Undertaker onto the chair. There's your headshot. Kane leaves Taker laying in the ring, or not. Taker manages to sit up, stagger to his feet, and head up the aisle, as his music plays victorious, but this issue with Kane is far from over. Coming up after the break, I had to give it its own segment. It's the main event. The moment that truly helps set everything in a totally different direction in the WWF for years to come. It's Shawn Michaels versus Stone Cold Steve Austin for the World Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 75th episode of the People's Podcast. It's the retro review of WrestleMania 14, and we'll be back after this. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. So, you know, I'm a dog, and I'm kind of new to this family, but I've noticed a trend. My humans do this thing where they go around and get all my toys and hide them in this basket, but it's always the same basket, and it's always the same place, and then they act so surprised when I find them, but I'm like, hello, that's where you put it last time. Humans are the worst at hide-and-go-seek. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. 
Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. In 50 feet, turn left. Why are you driving so slowly? After a few drinks, I'm taking it slow. Well, you're not fooling the cop behind you. What? Get ready to pay in point one miles. <sighs> Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. This is JSC Radio. If you don't know, you should know. My name is Stone Cold Steve Austin, and I've been busting my ass for eight years to get this opportunity to wrestle for the WWF title at a WrestleMania. So, Shawn Michaels, you can bet your last dollar that I take this match more serious than any match I've ever had in my life. Professionally, I think you're one of the greatest wrestlers to ever step in a ring. Personally, I think you're a big piece of trash. Steve Austin, in my opinion, is the Latrell Sprewell of the World Wrestling Federation, and Vince McMahon is PJ Carlissimo. I do not lay down. I repeat, I do not lay down for absolutely anybody. The ill thing is about that remark is Shawn Michaels was very much correct. He really wasn't quote unquote laying down for anybody back in these days. This is the 75th episode of the People's Podcast. It's the retro review of WrestleMania 14 right here on JSC Radio. I want to take a second to thank my man Doc Gillingsworth for all that he does and getting me all these beats here. This here, though, is the beat he did for Rufio Jones and Nigerian King. Be sure to check out that video on the YouTube or as well. You can simply hit up illingsworks.com to get all of his work as well as go on Spotify and follow Detroit City, Strife and Rufio Jones. You'll be glad you did. And they're all a part of the Mind of J. Scott podcast, which is on Spotify right now. Be sure to follow that as well. So, yeah. We're into the final segment, the home stretch. You know these retro reviews run at least twice as long as a regular podcast, but it's all the way worth it. So far, I've talked about the return of the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors, winning a schmozzy battle royal, to The Rock saying very problematic things with Jennifer Flowers, to The Rock getting beaten up by Ken Shamrock and still managing to win or keep the Intercontinental title despite the fact that he tapped out, to Sable and Mark Merrow surprisingly stealing the show during this entire thing to Owen Hart and Triple H having a pretty good match and China magically materializing baby powder out of her pants to The Undertaker and Kane having a wild, weird little skirmish that was started out with a guy who could have been in the Baseball Hall of Fame eating a tombstone. This was 1998 in the WWF, y'all. So now we get to the main event. The thing that has brought us here to begin with. The whole endgame of this entire bizarre nine-month stretch, really, in the WWF. A stretch that began with The Undertaker as world champ in the summer of 1997, to Bret Hart winning it at SummerSlam, taking the belt into the fall of 97, having the Montreal Screwjob occur, and Shawn Michaels gets the belt for the winner of 97, Stone Cold Steve Austin winning the Royal Rumble and setting in place this run-up to the WrestleMania main event. So, Michael's saying he doesn't lay down for anyone is very true. Everyone knows the whole dealio that really goes back to the previous year's WrestleMania, 
with Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. Shawn was supposed to face Bret in essentially a rematch of the Iron Man match at WrestleMania 12 in 1996. But we all know what happened. Not long after the Royal Rumble and not long before WrestleMania, suddenly Shawn lost his smile to a, quote, career-ending knee injury, and he forfeited the WWF Championship. To that point, between 1993 and at that stretch, April of 1998, Shawn Michaels was Intercontinental Champion three times, Tag Team Champion twice, and WWF Champ three times. This was his third run as champion by the time we got to this match. Of all those occasions, only twice did Shawn Michaels actually drop the belt in the ring. The first one was in 1993 when he lost the Intercontinental Championship to Marty Jannetty. He eventually ended up winning it back a week later at a house show. The other time was at the 1996 Survivor Series when he shockingly lost the world title to Psycho Sid. Those are the only two times that Shawn Michaels had actually dropped a belt in the ring. Every other time, it was a forfeit because of an injury or a suspension or he lost his smile. He would always find a way to weasel out of it. The macho man Randy Savage used to say, you win him in the ring, you lose him in the ring. So why do I bring this point up? It wasn't just because of that innocuous offhand comment that Sean made about not laying down for anybody. There had been a lot of speculation running up to this world title match with Shawn Michaels and Steve Austin that Sean would not play ball and would try to find a way to get out of having to drop the belt, whether it's finding a way to get out of dropping the belt by trying to maneuver into winning the match or by finding a way to claim he was injured and not go through with it. Here's the crazy part. Shawn Michaels was legitimately injured this time. As you recall, during the Royal Rumble review, I brought up the point that Shawn Michaels, in the match with The Undertaker, the casket match, went over the top rope and clipped a very sharp corner of the casket. Undertaker, manhandling. Oh no, this could be over quick! He's, trying to, he's got to put him in that casket. Michaels in. Oh. After hitting his back on that corner of the casket, he finished the match and seemed like he was doing okay. He wasn't okay. He was in extreme pain to the point that he was essentially persona non grata since the Royal Rumble. He did not wrestle a match on TV between the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania 14. At the No Way Out pay-per-view the previous month, Savio Vega, much to uh, the consternation of the entire crowd in Houston, took Sean's place in what was to be an eight-man tag match because Sean legitimately couldn't go. Like, his back was just screwed. And they got multiple opinions, and this was also around the time that Sean unfortunately developed a painkiller habit because he was trying to numb himself up enough to get through this match because it was simple. You had to get the match into the ring. You had to get the belt to Steve, and you had to do it the right way. So this is how it was going to be. Sean, who's barely able to walk at certain stretches, but was able to do a whole lot of promo work in term, in the run-up, like the, doing the press conferences, and they had the now famous public workout in Boston where he walks out of the ring because somebody threw something at him and had to be forced out of a limo back in there to finish what they were doing. Meanwhile, here's Austin, 
the winner of the Royal Rumble, where without Sean around, he's largely had to build this thing by essentially setting the table for his beef with Vince McMahon, who was still Vince and not Mr. McMahon. Mike Tyson was also a big part of the build, but again, with Sean largely hurt, there's only so much you could do. This was a mess. Austin has said as much that this championship match, as he put it, sucked because it wasn't the proper way to really coronate somebody. It wasn't like when the Ultimate Warrior won at WrestleMania 6 and it was a coronation of sorts. It wasn't like WrestleMania 3 and Hulk Hogan. Hell, it wasn't like WrestleMania 4 with the Macho Man. This was not a proper coronation. And he said this on multiple occasions on his, po- on his podcast and other interviews. But they wanted to make it a point to get this over to him. And yes, up to that day, Shawn Michaels was still playing coy about whether he would do the job to the point where The Undertaker and Bruce Prichard and a few others have actually verified this. The Undertaker started taping up his fists and staring down Shawn Michaels during the day of this match, saying, oh, you're doing the job, sir. You're going to do what's right or I'll take care of you. This is the backdrop for the main event. The highlight package focuses on Tyson and Austin and DX and a little bit of Vince. It features the public workout. Lots of super kicks because one of the few things Sean could do since he couldn't wrestle, he would show up on Raw, he would talk shit and usually either run out of the ring or sneak up behind Steve and hit him with a super kick and take off. So there was lots of that. But there wasn't anything else truly out of Sean between the Rumble and WrestleMania. And now we head to the ring for the main event. First out, the special enforcer for this match, Iron Mike Tyson. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest is scheduled for one fall, and it is for the World Wrestling Federation Championship. Introducing first, the special enforcer, the baddest man on the planet, Iron little interesting footnote about that DX live band playing that song for Tyson as he comes out. That would eventually be the theme song for a guy who would return to the company the following night. Yes, we'll talk about that after this match is over. So Tyson is in the ring and next up is one of the, again, more iconic videos, one of the more iconic clips they show on WWE TV today. It's Stone Cold Steve Austin popping out of the back room, making this walk up the hallway, this lonely, quiet hallway, heading toward the ring as he makes his way out for his world title match. breaking the incredible pop it was clear who the man was in 1998 
Part of that, I think, is what bothered Shawn Michaels so much, is that he knew he was no longer the man. That back injury making it even worse, but he knew he was no longer the man. One year earlier, Steve is in one of the greatest WrestleMania matches ever with Bret Hart, and now a year later, he's staring down a world title match. Crazy. Next out, the champion, led by Triple H in China, Hunter famously flipping the birds toward the camera, and Sean looks into the camera and dedicates it to Earl Hebner, who I mentioned is not there. He referred to Hebner as his good luck charm, for obvious reasons there. He didn't look good. In fact, he looked like he was basically shot up full of painkillers, and he was out there to try to get the job done. And he did as he headed out to the ring. Another thing, the DX band, and they've had this thing poorly mic'd even earlier for Triple H. The DX band was so loud that you couldn't actually hear Howard Finkel's intro of the champion. So the match begins. They're in the ring. Sean, who at this point looks like he's doing okay, but his condition quickly devolves as this match is going on. The crowd, obviously, firmly behind Austin here. HBK dances around, gets flipped off by Steve because that's just what Steve does. Michaels attempts to run with Austin chasing him out and catching him. And he, as he catches him, Sean used to do this a lot. Sean would try to run out of the ring or run up a ladder. Someone would grab his tights. And next thing you know, it's all moons over Miami. Michaels asses all the way out. Michaels gets backdropped out of the ring to the floor, hits Triple H and lands on his back with his ass hitting Triple H right upside the head. And angry Triple H just openly and blatantly jumps Steve on the floor. Instead of Kyoto disqualifying Michaels, which could have happened, this was not a no DQ match, he simply ejected Triple H in China from the ring. Michaels takes over on Austin briefly before he slips free and jumps Triple H as he's on his way back to the back, tosses him onto the band stage and stomps him out. Michaels makes the save, hits Austin with a pair of cymbals from the band. I'm hoping that this band got reimbursed for their shit getting destroyed, really, this whole night. Austin gets tossed into the side of the dumpster, the same dumpster that was used earlier and was still just hanging around out there. Back in the ring, Austin catches HBK off guard, off the to- coming off the top rope, takes over on offense, and then fires Sean into the turnbuckle, and he hits really, really hard. Like, think of the Ric Flair spot, where Flair is fired into the turnbuckle and he does the flip over and runs across the apron, except this is not what happens. He fired, He fires Sean in there. He hits this thing hard on his back and goes full ass over tea kettle onto his head. It was brutal. And this was also where you saw the first signs of how much Sean is actually hurting in here to start to, it really starts to show. It is noticeable that he gets slower by the second in here. Now, Austin attempts two covers, sends HBK in to attempt a stunner, but HBK slips out and onto the apron. Think of the RKO spots when Randy Orton goes for that, or the diamond cutter spots if you're a WCW fan, and DDP would attempt it and dudes would slip out out to the floor. 
He manages to get out to the floor, but gets knocked off into the table by Steve. Austin takes control again. Clearly, Michaels is in pain. Ross and Lawler even have to start making notes of that. And also, noticeably, Tyson has been kind of just, you know, hanging out on the outside of the ring. He's been chilling, kind of keeping to himself, staying low and staying out of the way, which is good. HBK briefly regains control, visibly struggling. And I mean visibly. If you go back and watch this match, it's kind of amazing that Sean even got through this because he can barely walk here. I've had bad foot problems and I've had back problems. I know how difficult it is to raise up out of bed. To do the things that Sean was doing in the ring this night is startling. Austin takes over again and they're back on the floor. They fight this time into the timekeeper's area. HBK backdrops Austin over the barricade and into the crowd. Remember, if you catch him, you can keep him. Steve recovers and walks right into a bell shot from Michaels. Still no disqualification. But also, HBK is basically immobile. He can barely move. He's struggling to stand. You can see him propping himself up on the announce table and on the ring post and on the apron. He's hanging on. He'll get Austin back in the ring, fires off a series of punches, but looks like he has tears in his eyes again due to the pain. You can hear Tyson yelling words of encouragement because Tyson is standing there in a DX t-shirt, yelling words of encouragement to HBK as the Boston crowd starts to taunt Michaels by chanting Holyfield at him. That's creative. I'll give them that one. Michaels struggling on every step, bending over to get Steve even just by the leg is a chore. But he manages to get Austin's leg, starts to stomp him out before throwing up a double bird to the crowd. Austin fires up, pounces on HBK, tosses him out to the floor again. I don't know how this dude was still making this happen. HBK catches him by the leg, pulls him out of the ring post, and slams Austin's knee across it twice. Austin, of course, had that knee brace, that big-ass knee brace he wore a lot to the ring. Back in the ring, as Sean struggles just to get through the ropes, Austin's leg keeps getting worked. Now, Austin reverses HBK, slingshotting him into the post, getting a roll-up for a very convincing near fall. Sean gets back in control, goes to work on Austin's leg, and every move by Michaels looks more and more painful as he goes on. He does manage to hit a baseball slide, sending Austin into JR and Lawler at the table. Tyson then throws him right back into the ring. HBK hits a chop block on Steve and then puts the figure four on, which does elicit some Ric Flair woos in the crowd. Austin avoids a three count. HBK then uses the ropes for more leverage. Austin is finally able to reverse the figure four to be able to escape, which probably legitimately caused more pain to Michaels than it does to Austin. He then fires up, monkey flips Michaels into the post, and then rolls him up again for another close near fall. HBK reverses an Irish whip into the sleeper hold. Austin attempts to break it and shoves HBK into Mike Kyoto. Damn it, that's right. We got ourselves a ref bump. Three times, no less. Completely just took him out. Austin hits the snake eyes on Sean, then unloads punches, mud hole stomps, and a backdrop that does a whole lot more damage than a backdrop normally would do to a guy. Austin then sends him in. HBK hits a forearm. Michael somehow gets to the top rope and hits the elbow, and this sets up the finish. Michaels setting up for the super kick in the corner, trying to get the crowd behind him, and this is where the entire game changes. Austin back up somehow. Uh-oh. Austin ducked it. Austin going for the stunner, and Michaels counter. Michaels going for another tip. Austin, he got it! The stunner! By Tyson in! Austin is the champion! Stone Cold! Stone Cold! Stone Cold! Wait a minute! Oh, 
Michaels was attempting the super kick in the corner. Austin ducks it, catches him, tries a stunner. HBK reverses it, misses a second super kick on the rebound. He gets His leg gets caught. He spun into a stone cold stunner. And Tyson sprints into the ring for a really quick three count on HBK for the pin and the win. Stone Cold Steve Austin, in an even 20 minutes flat, wins his first WWF World Heavyweight Championship. And as Jim Ross put it, the Austin era officially had begun. There it was. Shawn Michaels with one of the more underrated performances in a WrestleMania match. And you know I don't like to use that word performance when it comes to pro wrestling, but This is more in the athletic sense of the level of pain that he was in, the pain threshold that was just crawling up this dude's body the whole time. I don't know how the hell he did it. I really don't. Knowing what we know about Shawn Michaels and what went on after this, I don't know how on earth Shawn Michaels wrestled that match. I have no clue, let alone with 20 minutes in a situation where most guys couldn't go five. After the match is over, Austin grabs a 316 shirt, tosses it to Tyson, who holds it up as the crowd cheers. The original plan for this was that Tyson was supposed to tear off the DX shirt and then put on the Austin 316 shirt. Another instance would be that he actually had the 316 shirt on underneath the DX t-shirt, similar to what he did on Monday Night Raw. Another problem is, is that once Tyson got the shirt up, here's Shawn Michaels finally staggering back to his feet, seeing Tyson in the ring holding the Austin 316 shirt after he just quick counted him out of the title. And Sean doesn't know what the hell to think. Michael said, no, Mike, you're supposed to be with me. Uh, Michael's insulting Tyson. Michael's standing up for the baddest man on the planet. starts poking Tyson in the chest, gets in his face, attempts to try to throw a punch. Mike cuts him off and catches him with a quick right, drops him instantly, and that does it for Shawn Michaels. And here is a moment, if you watch the end of this, after he lays out Shawn, Steve standing in the corner holding the belt, walks over, gives Shawn the double bird, and then Mike, instead of putting on the Austin 316 shirt, walks over and drapes it over the fallen Shawn Michaels, right over his face. The plan initially was, is that Shawn said he had no problem taking the punch, he had no problem being laid out, but do not lay the shirt across him like he was a dead body. What does Mike Tyson do? He lays the shirt across him like a dead body. This apparently had Shawn absolutely livid. The confetti starts flying, Austin and Tyson leave as Austin's music plays in the background, and that is the end of WrestleMania 14. At the WrestleMania post-game press conference, the dais featured Vince McMahon, Steve Austin, Mike Tyson. There was no Shawn Michaels. Shawn was both physically and emotionally hurting, and he was starting to go through his issues with drugs. And he was not too pleased about not being the guy up on the podium on the dais after the match because, well, you're not the champ. You're not going to put the guy who lost the title belt up at the press conference. You lost. 
Sean attempts to storm the press conference, but is cut off by Triple H and Shane McMahon and shoved out the door, but he's pissed. He's hot. That would be the last you would see of Shawn Michaels for months in the WWF. And this was also the last time you would see Shawn Michaels in the ring in the WWF for four and a half years. Shawn Michaels would not wrestle another match in the WWF until SummerSlam 2002 against Triple H. This would also be his last WrestleMania appearance for five years. The next time you would see Shawn at a WrestleMania is when he faces Chris Jericho at WrestleMania 19 in Seattle. This was also the last night for the Hulk Hogan era winged eagle belt, the winged eagle world title belt that had been held by the likes of Hogan, Savage, Ultimate Warrior, Bret Hart, Ric Flair, Shawn Michaels. That would be the last night of the world famous winged eagle belt. I actually have a winged eagle belt in my closet here. I've taken pictures with that thing. That belt is amazing. That belt, that was the last night you saw it because the following night on Monday Night Raw, which was a rather monumental episode in and of itself, the first thing you saw was Vince McMahon strolling out to the ring with the new blue Big Eagle belt. The Big Eagle belt, which was big, circular, kind of like their answer to the big gold belt with the Big Eagle, the big WWF logo, and the word champion across the front. Stone Cold Steve Austin walks out with the winged eagle belt to start that night's Monday Night Raw, comes out there, tosses the belt to to Vince, grabs the blue belt and celebrates, and Vince sets the table for what would be years of beef between the Rattlesnake and the chairman, Vince McMahon. Infamously, Vince basically told Stone Cold Steve Austin that he would conform to what he wants, and he could either do it the easy way or the hard way. I think we know which way Steve decided to go with this. That's an extremely important decision in my book for yours and my relationship. Can I have maybe 10 seconds to think about this decision? By all means. Austin and McMahon is off and running once again. Two weeks later, by the way, would be the night that Raw finally beats Monday Nitro because of a teased match between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Vince McMahon. Also that night, a new DX was born out. Triple H, who was pretty pissed off because of the whole Tyson fiasco and the fact that Michaels is done and to cover for the fact that he would be done for the foreseeable future, decided it was time for him to step up and take control of D-Generation X. This is the genesis of D-Generation X. Tonight, live in front of the world, I form the DX Army, an army to take care of business that should have been taken care of right from the start. And he also decided he wanted to bring back an old friend. I heard Hulk Hogan come out on television saying I couldn't cut the mustard. Well, Hulk Hogan, you suck, pal. (laughs) So I don't think you have any room to talk about anybody cutting any kind of mustard. 
And Hulk, I got, I got some more advice for you. You better not stop short or Eric Bischoff will go so far up your ass, he'll know what you had for breakfast. Well, he's telling the truth so far. Yes, indeed. That voice you heard there was the voice of Sean Waltman, better known as the 123 Kid, or Six, as he was known in WCW, where he had just been unceremoniously fired less than a month earlier in a retaliatory tactic by Eric Bischoff in a way to send a message to Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Oh, and uh, by the way, speaking of which, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall would be standing right here with us if they weren't being held hostage by World Championship Wrestling. And that's a fact, Eric Bischoff. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Yeah, they were shooting for real. This was essentially the Attitude Era's full coming out party. And it didn't stop there. Meanwhile, as you recall, The Rock is still the Intercontinental Champion. But he was also hung out to dry by the leader of the Nation of Domination, one Farouk. Well, that suddenly changed. After a tag match ended in kind of a full-on disaster with... The Rock and Farouk finally getting into it after weeks and weeks of tension. The Nation of Domination made its decision and jumped Farouk in the ring, fully establishing The Rock as not only the leader, but also the ruler of the nation. And it looks like it may be rock bottom for Farouk. You let this be a lesson to you, you spoofed piece of trash. There's a reason why The Rock... Don't ever want you to think that you were ever the leader of The Rock because The Rock is not only now the leader of the Nation of Domination, he's the ruler of the Nation of Domination. And uh, going back to that whole DX Army thing, I've talked about it for months. Triple H didn't just bring back Sean Waltman, a.k.a. 123Kid, a.k.a. 6, eventually X-Pac, whose song that you heard playing Tyson down to the ring at WrestleMania, they also decided to cross two new members into Degeneration X. Are you kidding me? The main event of that night's show was the New Age Outlaws against Cactus Jack and Terry Funk in a rematch for the World Tag Team titles, this time in a steel cage. And as the cage match was ending, suddenly X-Pac and Triple H show up along with China to start to attack Cactus and Terry. They're wondering what the hell's going on. Well, you saw what was going on. The New Age Outlaws join up with DX and now the group had reached its full form. Four guys plus China. Next thing you know, we got ourselves a hell of a faction that would head into 98, initially seen as a bunch of brass jackass heels. They would eventually turn into one of the biggest babyface factions in the history of professional wrestling. This was 1998, y'all. This is what happened with WrestleMania. And that completes the four-part saga that took you from SummerSlam 97 to WrestleMania 14. And damn it, it has been an adventure. But we're not done. 
the next retro review coming up next month ladies and gentlemen 20th anniversary of one of the wildest single moments one of the seminal moments in wwf history the next retro review is this what's gonna happen here undertaker fighting back he's fighting back they're out of those folks and i don't like it a damn bit oh my god Damn right you knew I was going to do it. The next retro review is of the 1998 King of the Ring. It's the 20th anniversary of the illest moment pro wrestling has ever seen. It's a pop culture moment. It made Jim Ross's already legendary voice iconic. And it changed Mick Foley's life and The Undertaker's life forever. My name is Jay Scott Smith. Telling you to take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. Always have your pets spayed or neutered. Remember to adopt and not buy. Thank you for taking this journey with me. And we are out of here. Until next time, goodbye, everybody. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. on the news about that five-year-old who found his uncle's gun. The kid didn't know it was loaded. I heard on the news about that 14-year-old girl who was bullied online. For like a year, she couldn't take it anymore, so she got her dad's gun from his nightstand. I heard on the news about that guy who broke into someone's house, stole a gun from the hall closet. He accidentally shot his cousin in the head. She killed herself. And later, killed the owner of the store he was trying to rob. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council.